Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. All right, if you would go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As uh, has already been stated a couple times, today we're going to wrap up our mini-series on identity from Ephesians, and we're going to transition next week to talking about making a masterpiece. And tonight's going to kind of be a bridge between the two of those thoughts, and so I want you to see if you can catch it here in just a minute. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 8 in just a moment, but before we do that, is anyone familiar with the name James Hudson Taylor. Anybody know who James Hudson Taylor is? He was a British missionary who went to China, and he spent 51 years in China. Now, it's been said of him, and I quote here, no other missionary in the 19th centuries since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. So pretty big missionary, uh, big, big deal. Well, Taylor is quoted as saying this, it is not a great faith that we need. Rather, it is a faith in a great God. And in verses 8 through 10 that we're going to read here in just a minute is the classic summary of Paul's argument that it is not based on what we do. It is salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Um, many times when this text is taught, it's taught as a, an evangelistic sermon, and this is going to be somewhat an evangelistic sermon. Uh, but I think as we look at the context that we've come from, it's, it's more than what we generally give it credit for. It's, it's not simply talking about how to get to heaven when you die. It's more than that. It's talking about how you are transformed from one area, one identity, to another identity. And how that is affected and how that goes and puts us into a special place. And we're going to talk about that special place here in a minute. Uh, but we go from living in death and sin and disobedience to Christ, to, and disobedience to God, through Christ into living in peace and unity with God. Now, the center of this transformation between being children of disobedience and being children of obedience, children of God, is this key idea of salvation by grace through faith. So what I'd like for us to do first is pray, and then we will dive into this passage together. Father God, I thank you so much for this evening, for the opportunity we have to come to sing these songs of worship to you, to, to hear your word through us, Lord, that you stir our emotions, you stir our minds, you stir our hearts to focus on you. And Lord, tonight as we look at this idea of, of transformation, of new identity that we have in Christ, and how that is being used by you, and being transformed into a new community, a beautiful masterpiece, Lord, would you speak to our hearts and unveil your word to us. May we have, as we've studied previously, uh, enlightened eyes of our hearts that we would fully comprehend and understand what this text is saying. Pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, so in this passage, there are two 
fours. And when I say fours, I mean F-O-R-S, not number fours. There are two fours which tie back to what we've already looked at in verse 7 last week. Uh, these fours provide the support for what Paul was talking about in verse 7 on this surpassing richness of God, uh, the, of his grace to believers. So the first of these two fours we find in chapter, uh, verse number 8. It says this, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So first we see this first four talks about the way of salvation. The way of salvation. Paul writes, for you are saved. For you are saved. Well, we, we like to think we know what saved means, but let's, let's talk a little bit more about what salvation is here. Salvation here is in the perfect tense, meaning that it's something that has already been accomplished, but it has a lasting effect. And it refers to the, the act of Christ, right? Uh, this understanding of salvation, we have to go all the way back, though, to the beginning of this chapter. And we looked at this last week. Chapter 2, verse 1. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Right? That's who we were. We too all previously lived uh, among them according to our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. So what is this salvation referring to? We, we see who we are as those who are without Christ. We see who we are, that we were by nature children under God's wrath. This sin which ruled over us, it caused us to be spiritually dead. And Paul said, and I think uh, Dr. Spivey used this term uh, last week, spiritual zombies. That we were living, we were walking, we were acting like we were alive, but we were actually dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were disobedient, we were concerned only with the things of this present age. But then the turning point came in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. And then he makes this statement that we're really going to hone in on uh, tonight. He says, you are saved by grace. Exclamation point. You are saved by grace. But notice there was two words there that he used also. He said he is rich in mercy, and he said he has great love. So this great love, his motivation for the salvation that we have is because God has love for his creation. But God's love wasn't enough to save us. I know that sounds weird to say, but... As much as I love you, if I do nothing to act on that love, how would you ever know that I love you? Well, so his motivation was his love. But Paul wrote that God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He had great compassion upon us. He had great pity upon us because of who we were, because we were these sinful, spiritually dead people. He had mercy on us. 
But notice if we go back to verse 5, even there Paul says that the thing that has saving power is his grace. He exclaimed it in verse 5, you are saved by grace. And then in verse 8, he comes back to this idea of salvation by grace. Look with me again. He says, verse 8, for you are saved by grace through faith. We'll come back to the through faith in just a minute. But first, we're saved by grace. Now, we use this word grace a lot, especially in church and in the Bible. And we have this idea of we think we know what grace means, but do we truly understand what grace is? And do we understand how it's different from mercy? So here's something that I found useful is to list these out. So look at it this way. If you place your name at the top of this list, this is who, according to Ephesians chapter 2, who we are without Christ. We are in our trespasses. We're in our sins. We're disobedient. We have fleshly desires. We have the inclinations of the flesh and our thoughts. And what do we get because of that? God's wrath. And what does that result in? Spiritual death. This is who we are, right? But when we turn to this idea of mercy, mercy would be like this next slide. Mercy is God says, all of that, I'm going to take that away. I forgive all of that. You are forgiven in Christ. That is who we are in Christ. We have been forgiven. Those have been wiped away. See, mercy is not getting what we do deserve because according to that, what we deserve is God's wrath. Yes? We are previously living in fleshly desires and in sin, and we were by nature children under wrath. And on your own, there's nothing that you or I or any person who's ever walked this planet could do to save ourselves from the wrath of God. But his mercy towards us wipes all of those out. His forgiveness is given to us. But what's more than mercy is this idea of grace. Because grace has been outpoured toward us in Christ. If you are in Christ, his nature has been, Scripture says, it's been imputed to you. It's been given to you. We were, by nature, the opposite of Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus was. Jesus was sinless. He was perfection. He was obedient to the Father, right? He always followed what God wanted him to do. He didn't follow his own desires, but well, actually his desires were the desires of the Father. He had thoughts that were heavenly thoughts, not worldly thoughts. And because of this, we talked about the, this morning, he grew in stature and in favor with man and with God. So he was favored by God and at his baptism, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? And so he has God's favor. And because of that, he has eternal life. Also because he's the God man and he's eternal in being God. But here's what happens. When we accept Christ, when we place our faith in him, and we'll talk more about faith here in just a minute. When we put our faith in him, what happens is his nature goes under our name. All of these things that he was, we become. In Christ, our identity has been changed to the things that we've been studying about for the past several weeks. In the chosen one, we are chosen. 
in the Holy One, we are holy. In, in the Redeemer, we are redeemed. Because of who Jesus is, our identity has changed. And most importantly, in the Son, we become God's children. So our identity is changed because in Jesus, we are saved by God's amazing grace. This is the language of being transferred from one dominion, the dominion of sin and darkness and hell, to the dominion of God's love and his light. Instead of being under wrath, we're under grace. Isn't that so amazing to think about? But how, how do we access this? How do we access this salvation? And the key comes there in verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ Jesus. It is grace by faith. These ideas of grace and faith are inseparable companions, which together provide the way of salvation for us. God's act of grace is the effect, the ground of salvation, and faith is the means by which it becomes effective by the application of the Holy Spirit to our lives. And this faith is, in fact, the very antithesis to a works-based salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think about this. I don't know if you're aware of this, but tonight, in about 25 minutes, there is going to be a meeting in DFW. They were handing out tracts or posters about this at chapel. What's going on tonight? Uh, these, this theme of unlikely allies, Christians and Muslim leaders coming together in the DFW area to help build flourishing communities. It's a great idea. I'm really in favor of this, but I respect what they're trying to accomplish. Let me say that. I think that it's a great idea for people of other religions to come together and to have conversations with people of other religions. It gives us an opportunity to see how we differ. It gives us maybe an opportunity to learn how we can better evangelize in one sense. But here's what I have a problem with. They're calling this event a global faith forum. Well, here's my problem. Only one of those religions has faith built into it. Christianity is based on faith, but Islam is based on works. It is a religion. It is not a faith. There's a difference. The whole concept is based on being one. A Muslim is one who does. One who submits and does what the, the word that Muhammad reports they have to do. They're the ones who follow through on doing that. Right? That is a Muslim. Right? Uh, Ted Cable, a professor over at Swibitz, uh, wrote that all false gospels add works to grace. And he used the Mormons as an example. And he takes one of their writings, and it sounds quite close to what we've been reading. It says this, um, For we know that it is by grace that we have been saved. Sounds right? Yes? We just read that. But here's where we differ. They add this phrase, After all we do. The difference between Biblical Christianity and all other religions is this component of faith. It is this idea that we can't do it on our own. There's no way we can earn our salvation. It is solely 
based on what has already been accomplished for us by our God. If you could earn salvation by your own good works, then you would not be a work of God. You would be a work of yourself. It would be something that you've done on your own. But faith is abandoning this idea that we can do it all on our own and understanding that we can't justify ourselves. But Christ has justified us. It is a willingness to trust and accept that what God has done for us in Jesus and sacrificing his only begotten son was effective for our salvation and we have nothing left to do. Paul writes this, continuing in verse 9, this is, not, or verse 8, this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. It is not of yourselves. This whole process of salvation is not something you can accomplish. It's not something I can accomplish. It's something that only God can accomplish. Remember who we are without Christ. All the way back to the beginning of this chapter. In our sin and rebellion, we are dead. But in Christ, we are made alive. We can do nothing for our own salvation. It is based solely on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And Paul here emphasizes, this is an act of God. It is God's gift is how my version says, but the reality is that Paul put God in the emphatic position. God comes first because it is God who accomplished this. God is the source of our salvation. Christ is the source of our salvation, not us. It's a gift, but we must accept it, yes, but it's not something that we've done. It's something that we trust has been done for us. Yet many refuse to accept this gift because it seems too easy. Instead, they want to boast in themselves and what they've done. But Scripture says here, we're only to boast in Jesus. It is not from works so that no one can boast. Paul writes this idea over and over. If we must boast, we must boast in Jesus. Now, in our chapel service uh, message on Thursday, I don't remember the preacher's name, but he spoke about what he thinks is the most common false religion in the American South, uh, referring to United States American. And it's something that I'm quite familiar with, and I bet you're familiar with it too. I like to call it good old boyism. <laughs> it's this idea that a person will go to heaven when they die because they were a good person. Old Joe Schmo, he'll give you the shirt right off his back. If you're broke down on the side of the road, he's going to stop and help you change the tire. He's going to pop the hood, and even if he doesn't know anything about engines, he's going to take a look to make you feel better. Right? He's good. He's a good guy. He doesn't do many bad things. The ones that he does are, are kind of small things. If anyone's going to go to heaven, it's Joe because he's good. And I agree with the preacher Thursday because he said the biggest hindrance for effective evangelism in the American South is the idea that that person is too good to go to hell. For most, it's a sub subjective idea, right? I am better than this person, so therefore I'm good. And I shouldn't be sentenced to death because I'm good. They're concerned about 
what, how people look at them, keeping their good name. They can always point to someone who's worse than they are. Everyone else is a sinner just like me. I'm no worse than anybody else. But I'm not as bad as that drunk down the street who beats his wife. I've never killed anybody. I'm good. The problem is, Scripture teaches us that there is no one good. There is not one good. Repeatedly, over and over, it says, the only one who is good is God. And so he is the standard to which we compare ourselves. He is the standard to which we must live up to. And so Jesus, this, this God-man, he, he reached this goal of perfection that we cannot obtain. He reached it for us because he was God and he was man. He was both and he was perfect. And yet, despite this fact that he was perfect, he took on the punishment for our sin. And he gave us all of his benefits that we saw on that slide a minute ago. I like this Jonathan Edwards quote. Says you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I've seen this all over Facebook this past week, and I said, God, you must be trying to tell me I need to use that this week. Because, wow, think about the truth of that. You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Boasting perverts this idea of human anatomy. Between, but above, and it makes it an object of trust. And what salvation by grace does is it destroys this idea of boasting. There is nothing that I can do of myself. I am not but a worm, but Christ is great. He is a great God, and I place my faith in him. The Bible teaches that salvation comes only by God's grace grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the first four. Now we come to the second four of this passage in verse 10. And we see the why of salvation. The why of salvation. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice I didn't say by good works, for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So there's a myriad of reasons why God would choose to save us, um, beginning with the fact that we already saw he loves us, he loves his creation. But as we look here, Paul points out two very specific reasons why God has chosen to save us. And the first is that we are to display God's workmanship. We are to display God's workmanship. We've been created in Christ, or shall I say recreated in Christ. If you've placed your faith and trust in him, you become a new creation. That's what scripture teaches. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. We are a new creation. Jesus himself taught this. John chapter 3, he said what? You must be born again. There's a new life that must take place, a new creation. But just as a baby does not make itself, it requires its parents, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves a new creation. 
It requires the work of God to create us as a new creation. If you could earn salvation by your own good works, you would not be a work of God. You would be a work of you. But how much greater it is that we are a work of God. Throughout Paul's letters, he regards the believer as a work of God. Philippians uh, chapter 1 verse 6. I am sure of this. That he who started a good work in you will carry it on till the day of completion. In Romans 14, Paul instructs uh, that one should not tear down God's work that he's been working because of what one eats. Talking about idol worship and talking about uh, food to idols. But he says you shall not Break down, tear down God's work, but rather what you should do is build one another up and promote peace. It's interesting, this, uh, this word here for we are his workmanship, this workmanship idea, the, the word in the Greek is the word from which we get the English word poem. It carries the idea of being a work of art. And as we'll begin to see next week, God is working in us and all of his people to create a beautiful work of art. He's working, taking all of us broken sinners, taking us, recreating us, composing us together to create this beautiful mosaic that we call the church. And he will take this beautiful piece of art that he has created, his church, and he will present it to his son as his bride on the appropriate day. As believers, we not only benefit from God's powerful work, but we are a product of his powerful work. God's actions of making believers alive in Christ, of raising them up and exalting them in Christ, that we read in verse 7, it provides a new start within established history. The church begins to take form. And it's, it's more than simply restoring what existed before the fall. We like to think that salvation is taking us back to what was before. Restoring Eden. But that's not what it's doing. It's a new creation. It's a different creation. Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were innocent. They were good because they hadn't experienced anything else. But I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely experienced some things that were not good. I've definitely made some decisions that were not good. I've definitely done some things that I am not proud of. And yet, in Christ, I'm continually making better choices. I'm continually experiencing the grace of God, experiencing the peace of God. I've made a decision to follow him, to follow, to seek after that which is good. And when Christ comes to take us home and he returns to bring the fullness of this new creation to us, we will no longer deal with the presence of sin. But we will have chosen, if you have chosen to place your faith in Christ, you've chosen that which is good over that which is evil. Adam and Eve, when they were presented with the choice, they were innocent and they chose evil. But having experienced evil, we choose good. You ever think about that? How that difference comes into play. We've chosen not to be innocent. We can't be innocent. 
But we, in Christ, we're made right. We're made righteous. In Christ, we're made good as he is good. And as his product, we have a beauty to us. Carrie, did you know you're beautiful? We are beautiful. We are a piece of God's artwork. But, you know, there's different things about art. Different pieces of workmanship. Some things, you have, they're pretty things, and you put them up on the shelf as a trinket for everybody to look at. And you, everybody walks by and says, oh, look how pretty that is. But then there are other workmanships that are more functional. And as we've lived in this small apartment for a while now, we've moved away from the things that are pretty and sit on the shelf to the things that are functional. If it's just going to sit on a shelf... Let's get rid of it. We want something useful. Well, with us, we were made for something useful. We weren't made to sit as a trinket on the shelf. We were made to do something. And in the last part of this verse, in verse 10, he says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. Not by, for, not by good works, but for good works. And this is the u- unique element here of Ephesians chapter 2. It's this description of works of grace. Since salvation is a creation in Christ uh, for good works, these works can't be the cause of salvation, but rather they are the result of salvation. They are the fruit of this new life in Christ. As we attach ourselves to the vine, we begin to produce this fruit. Lives that are transformed by the power of Christ begin to do good things Not because we are good in and of ourselves, but because we have a new, good Christ nature. We seek to do good, Christ-like things. So what did Christ do? Well, in Matthew 11, John the the baptizer, his disciples come and ask Jesus. John had begun to doubt about maybe Jesus being the Messiah. And Jesus responds to the disciples saying this. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. Jesus did good things. Yes, he did miracles. Yes, he did things that we could probably not do on our own. But we can participate in those. Look at what the apostles did in Acts Uh, Peter and John healed a lame man in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 5, verse 15 to 16, uh, it says that the people would carry the sick out in the street. And they'd lay them out on cots and mats so that when Peter walked by, maybe a shadow, maybe his shadow would fall on them. And it says in verse 16, In addition, a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were healed. Think about what we do as a church. We pray for those who are sick. We go visit them in the hospitals. We go visit them in their homes when they're not able to leave. We bring them meals. We go to the streets and help the homeless like we did a couple of weeks ago. We are doing the things that Jesus did in a slightly different way because we're not working miracles. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. 
They're not the source of our salvation, but they are the goal of our salvation. They're the purpose of our salvation. And get this, because scripture says that these works were prepared by God ahead of time for us to do, we can claim no, no good from them. They belong not to us, but to him. God's preparation of these works precedes not only the believer's work, but the foundation of the world. He had set these aside for us to do before the world ever came into being. So these good works, they're not just an afterthought. It's not just a, hey, I'm saved, hey, I should go do something. No, it's the purpose for which we are saved. Andrew Lincoln said this, it is grace all the way. Even the living out of salvation in good works is completely by God's grace. Because salvation is not the end, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a new life in Christ, doing the things that Christ has done by doing the will of God and fulfilling the good deeds that he has established for us before the foundation of the world. So the overall idea here is this complete change for the believer. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were doing works of sin, works of wicked, evil, nastiness. But God's power reaches out to us. His grace grabs us, and he gives us the nature of his son, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness and sin and death to the kingdom of light and life and good works because of an account with Jesus, because we have placed our faith in Jesus. We have trusted that what Jesus has done is sufficient. It's a complete transformation from being dead to being alive. So if you're here tonight and you are a believer in Christ, that meaning that you've placed your faith, you've trusted him with your salvation. You're not trying to earn it by doing your own deeds of righteousness, but you're trusting that his nature has been imputed to you because you have placed your faith and trust in him. You do not have to strive for victory. Rather, you live in the victory that has already been accomplished. Understand your identity in Christ. But if you're here tonight and you are not in Christ. You have not accepted him. You have not placed your faith in him and you want to know what you must do to be saved. Here's what scripture says. You must first repent of your sin, meaning you must acknowledge that those sins are wrong and you do not want to do them anymore because you recognize that God says these things are wrong. Then here's what you do. You repent and then you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. You place your faith, you place your trust in him, and acknowledge that he has taken care of it. And all you need to do is trust him. If you haven't done that today, won't you do it today? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. 
If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.